presented by Mackenzie Brackman, Cheney, and Cusack, the City of Angels legal hole in one since 1986. <laughs> I am Rylan Grant, screenwriter, Ringo Award winning creator of fine comics like Aberrant, Banjax, and now Suicide Jockeys. The other voice in the dark, the man in the wax to the left is. David Avalone, uh, filmmaker, comic book writer, and uh, fugitive from uh, the laws of man. Love that. You know, I really wrestled uh, in that opening, making that L.A. Law reference. Uh, I probably should have put Becker uh, uh, on the door in terms Could of that. Cause, yeah, yeah, because because Arnie Becker uh, becomes a partner. You know, I don't know, season five or six, but um, I don't know. I'm 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 sorry, Corbin Burnson. Uh, I don't like leaving you out of anything. Um, if you missed any of our previous conversations, episodes uh, featuring comic luminaries like David F. Walker, Matt Fraction, Stan Sakai, Kevin Eastman, John Lehman, and many more great uh, uh, fine uh, ladies and gentlemen, our entire catalog can be celebrated via YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, and other purveyors of worthwhile ear cracks. So double on back and check it all out. Um, great show uh, uh, today about comic law. Uh, if, if it's not obvious already, um, we should get some plugs in before we go. Why don't you? Um, why don't yes, you start, the, the the plugs. Uh, the plugs are that currently in shops I have Elvira meets Vincent Price number two. Uh, three is coming out sometime in October. That's a at the moment a five issue miniseries. I got some Kickstarter stuff coming up that I can't quite announce yet, and. The Shape of Elvira trade is currently out, which is a four-issue miniseries from a couple of years ago, which is a parody of The Shape of Water starring Elvira. What do you got going on, Ron? Uh, so my latest and greatest, um, it is a uh, tokusatsu joint uh, from Source Point Press called Suicide Jockeys. Uh, tokusatsu for the uninitiated is the Japanese sci-fi action genre that includes Power Rangers and Super Sentai and uh, fun kaiju stuff like Godzilla. Um, in a nutshell, Suicide Jockeys is the Fast and the Furious meets Voltron with an extra dollop of heart and soul and uh, a lot of meaty uh, existential zen conversation. It is a uh, book that was uh, uh, sort of co-conceived by two uh, Soto Zen Buddhist monks uh, while away on a mountain retreat. Um, so that is a bonker stew, I know, but it is wonderful and audacious and, uh, you should check it out anyway. Suicide Jockeys. Um, I believe issue two, uh, is, uh, in comic shops today as you're listening to this. Um, so cool. go out and get it. Cool. That's, I will uh, run on down to uh, golden apple and get mine. Get uh, done. And now ladies and gentlemen, uh, let's meet Thomas Kroll. Hi guys! Howdy, howdy! Hey, Thomas, welcome to the show. Tell the tell the kids at home a little bit about yourself. I'm an entertainment attorney who specializes, among other things, in comic book creators and small publishing companies. Um, but before I turned to the dark side and became an attorney, I was actually an artist myself, a filmmaker like you, David. Uh, did the NYU Film School East Village, Doc Martin, Mohawk type thing, sure went nice. out to Hollywood, worked for literary agencies, produced stuff, was actually a television reporter for a while, and then uh, found out that, that somewhere along the line that, you know what, contracts and copyrights actually matter. They drive the industry as much, if not more so, than a lot of our creative juices. So you have to understand both of those if you really want to uh, make a career in this crazy business. Absolutely. I have a friend who's a great composer, film composer, named uh, Eben Schletter. 
and he had the classic parents that were like, "Get a responsible job, uh, you know, before you 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 become a musician." And he went to law school and became a lawyer. And it is wonderful working with a composer who's like, "And here's my contract that I wrote." <laughs> you know, right, like, right. He, he writes really great contracts when we've worked together, uh, and oh boy, what a what an advantage that is for him. Yeah, I mean, it, it's an advantage for him, but um, it is an advantage for us. Um, I have, um, we won't talk too much about the specifics, but I, I have uh, I, I've dealt uh, with Thomas uh, uh, in a business capacity. Um, and just, um, just, you know, just being in talks with him and, and, and doing the legal dance with him. It is great to be in business, to be working with someone, uh, uh, you know, in the legal profession who understands the creator, who has been a creator himself, herself. Um, uh, that is so key because, um, I mean, I've, you know, I've written in Hollywood for 15 years and I've dealt with a, a lot of lawyers, a lot of agents, a lot of managers and, and way too many of them have no idea what actually goes into making a film or making a book or directing an actor or, or any of these things. And so to, to talk to somebody who actually has made comic books is like a revelation. Thank you. And, you know, and it's funny because there's a flip side to that too, which is that Law and understanding some of the concepts that I hope we're going to unpack a little bit today uh, is, uh, is a lot less difficult. I mean, you do need to spend a little time and, and wrap your head around it and, and care about some of the concept, but uh, it's not stuff that you should be scared of as a creator. And uh, I think that's sort of right out of the gate. That's, that's a point I wanted to make is that I think, and perhaps too often those of us who are attorneys tend to create this artificial uh, distance between creator and professional because uh, I presume job security, uh, but there's a lot of stuff that we as creators can do on our own. And before we get too much into the weeds, if I may, I gotta give that obligatory, I'm a lawyer, so I gotta say this. Nothing I say during this podcast is legal advice. I am here in my capacity as a professor to share general knowledge. You rely on it at your own behest and at your own peril. That being said, I'll try and do a reasonably good job and tell you what I believe to be true. Nice. Uh, as long as we're getting disclaimers out of the way, and I appreciate that one, and I uh, I, I, I uh, endorse that one, uh, I might as well address the the elephant in the room. Uh, we sort of started this thing uh, with Thomas uh, 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 sort of hitting uh, you know the the nail on on the head of oh let's talk about how important contracts are. Um, our audience is mostly creators. Uh, there has been this tsunami in our creator community now that's going, uh, we're seeing a, a lot of the waves, the aftershocks on Twitter uh, with what's going on at, at Action Lab. I've had books at Action Lab. We're not gonna talk too much about that, uh, about Action Lab, or, but there are a lot of creators who uh, sign contracts that they are having uh, trouble with right now. Uh, there are these wrestling matches happening. And so, so Part of this, part of the goal of this is to get an expert on um, uh, who can tell us what we should expect out of a contract, what we should demand out of a contract, what a contract should look like, um, uh, 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 how do we protect our IP, um, uh, what rights are we giving away, should we be giving away, all of these things. Um, and so the idea was to bring Thomas on um, and to uh, explore with him maybe like the 10 things that we creators need to know, uh, uh, you know, when we're, when we're, we're starting to talk to publishers about our book, uh, when we're just starting to get our book out there, how do we protect ourselves? How do we protect the property? 
um, uh, what are our rights, um, uh, you know, what are the red flags, what should we look out for, what should we absolutely run away from, uh, and so Thomas is going to take us through that today. Thank you, and, and if I could just work in a an on-point but shamelessly self-promotional plug, um, two of them actually. Uh, one, a lot of what I'm going to be talking about in the next hour and a half or so, uh, I'm also going to be going into a lot of depth at New York Comic Con. So any of you who are going to be going to New York Comic Con can see me and a few of my colleagues uh, present to fellow creators on Friday, October 8th at 11 o'clock. And I think right now they have us in room 406. And the name of it, so you can look it up online, is Critical Contracts and Copyrights for the Comic Book Creator. I'm also going to be teaching a series of intensive workshops to attorneys. So I, I do two things at New York Comic Con. I've been doing them for years. Uh, on the one hand, I like to give abridged versions of a much longer lecture to creators so they can walk out with some actual tools that they can use in their own practice, stuff to, to help them out. I mean, I'm happy to talk at length about the history of copyright law, but let's face it, you want to know how you can use this stuff to protect you and to avoid trouble and to hopefully grow a career. So that's what that lecture is focused on. But I also do a longer version of it for attorneys who are interested in becoming comic book creative uh, types who, who want to either be creators themselves or who want to represent them. So I train about 200, 300 attorneys uh, over a weekend intensive. And if none of that is available to you because you just aren't going to New York Comic Con, here's the second shameless self-promotional plug. Uh, I'm the author of one of the, I believe to be the first book that is dedicated to comic book law for the creator. It's called The Pocket Lawyer for Comic Book Creators. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. It's from Focal Press. Um, and those of you like David, who are also filmmakers, uh, I have also written The Pocket Lawyer for Filmmakers. So uh, these are full of contracts, full of all the stuff that we're going to give sort of a, an abridged version of today. But uh, teaching creators how to protect themselves is near and dear to my heart. So very excited to dive in. And there and there's so much, you encounter so much mythology about the law, you know, everything from the, the ancient, oh, I mailed myself my script and the postmark Ooh. protects my, like <laughs> right. you hear that one. And I'm like, wow, still, we're still, we're still doing that one, huh? Um, so, you know, let's, let's kick off. What's, you know, you don't have to number the bullet points, but what's a, what's a, what's a first thing for, for creators to know about their rights or to look for in a contract or anything? So we, we started off sort of talking about this already, and I want to sort of dive in a little bit more. And there are two big areas that we all have to be able to wrap our heads around if we're going to be successful in, in this industry. And that is understanding your contracts and understanding your copyrights and other IP. So a lot of the comments that I'm going to make today are really going to be in those two camps, copyrights and contracts. And David, you hit the nail right on the head when you said that there's a lot of misinformation out there about what copyright protects, what doesn't, how you register it. So we're going to try and go through and jam pack as, as much copyright law goodness as we can in this uh, in this lecture, um, in this conversation, excuse me, I switched to professorial mode. Mm -hmm. um, but to start off, I think that uh, that from a copyright perspective, for comic book creators in particular, um, I'm going to say something a little bit incendiary, and that is this. 
work for hire, which all of us have been trained to view as, oh my gosh, it was the death of all of our favorite golden age comic book creators, is not always a bad thing. Oh, sure. I know, that's shocking. And it's shocking from a creator's perspective. Um, but I want to amend that a little bit and say it's not always a bad thing, but it depends upon the right contract. So you can sort of think of it as a sliding scale uh, as the, the more you're giving away of your rights, the more you should be getting contractually for those rights. So copyright and contract really have to work in tandem and you have to understand whether or not the contract that you are hopefully negotiating with a publisher is going to cover exactly what you think it is. And especially if it's a work for hire contract, you have to make sure that you are also getting paid what you deserve to be getting paid. So uh, I hope we'll be able to dive in a little bit into compensation models and how to get paid in those those sorts of issues. But understanding that copyright and contract need to work together, I think is our first key issue. Well, I wanna, as an aside, and I think it's a, it's a trend that I've noticed and it's something that I literally, I think so many of us do it unconsciously now in the comic book field because of the horror stories we've heard, which is I've been noticing that people doing work for hire at any comic book companies, we resist creating original characters as much as humanly possible. We draw from public figures, historical figures. We ask the editor, have you ever, has, does your company own a character who fits X, Y, and Z? Because we'd rather do that than create an original character that we have essentially given away uh, for, you know, to a company that then anyone can come along and write stories about and you will not necessarily be compensated. I'm told that at some of the companies now, the bigger ones, mm -hmm there are models to compensate people for creating new characters. But I still, you pick up an issue of a Marvel or DC comic, you're not seeing new characters popping up all the time. You're seeing who can I pull from the catalog and use so that I have not given away my art, my personal IP. Right. And, and for those reasons, exactly. Uh, now, I've represented a number of the, the bigger creators in the industry. I've also represented a number of the uh, of the publishing companies. So um, depending upon who the client is, you know, I'm going to emphasize one thing or another. But I think for creators, uh, the key is that if you have those properties that are near and dear to your heart, um, you're probably better off just for your own well-being, your psychic well-being, to hold on to those. Um, there are a number, I mean, really the two big ones, right? Marvel and DC do both have um, provisions in their contract for if you create a new unique character, how you can be compensated for that. I'm not going to go into details on, on the distinctions between the two, but but there there is language in their contracts that if you do create something as a work for hire, but it's it's a unique character that they then exploit, they'll compensate uh, you for it. Um, but often what's happening, most people aren't working for Marvel and DC. I mean, it would be great if they were, but they're not. So very often a lot of what we're going to examine happens in the realm of um, 
you partner up with somebody that you really like and maybe they're a writer and they're the ones who are writing the paycheck and and you're both kind of making it up as you go along or maybe you're a seasoned artist but the writer's a little less seasoned uh and then hopefully you'll flip it to idw or to another sort of uh, mid-level uh, publishing company like that and 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 where things often get fouled up is where the artist and the writer don't quite understand what work for hire means, how to create work for hire. And so by the time they deliver it to the publishing company, who is the one who's going to have the attorneys, um, they're going to look at that. And if the publishing company asks you, okay, prove up that you own what you say you own, if those contracts aren't in the right place, um, it's going to be a very rude awakening. Uh, and uh, so what I'd love to, to do is sort of un a little bit the concept of what is work for hire since we're, we're talking about that and is because i think a lot of people think they know what it is but you know there's actually some very specific ways that something can be worked for hire and most ways where it can't mm -hmm. um so when you have a work for hire what that means is the person who has commissioned you to produce the artwork or write the script owns the copyright as if and this is the one that kind of hits you right in the heart. It's as if they were the author, which kind of hits us in our artist's soul. And I get that. But there are only a few ways that that can happen. And this is something that you writers out there who want to hire artists take note. You can only have a work for hire in one of two situations. Uh, if you are employing somebody and it's within the scope of their employment. So let me pause there. What I mean is, yeah, employee. I don't mean a freelancer. I mean somebody who you're taking out taxes and you're treating the way we see as an employee. And it has to be within the scope of their employment. So if you're hiring somebody, a publishing company, hire somebody as uh, an inker or a flatterer or um, a letterer, but that's it. And that's their job description. The fact that they've written a script uh, on the weekends, that may not necessarily be owned by the publishing company. But many people in the comic book industry are freelancers, are doing um, you know, piecemeal work for this person and that person. So they're independent contractors. The only way to get an independent contractor's copyright as a work for hire is with a written agreement. And it must specify, have these magic words, work for hire or work made for hire or work that's specially ordered and commissioned. And if you have that and the creator has signed on the bottom line, you may have a work for hire. Uh, but absent that, then you have a license to use the work. I'll distinguish between the two. Work for hire means lock, stock and barrel. You own, the person who hired me now owns that copyright and they own it forever. But if I granted them a license to use it, they may be able to use it for their book, but there's something weird and counterintuitive in copyright law called termination of transfer. And what that means is at the end of a period of 35 years, I, as the creator, even though I've signed something, even though maybe I've said, you can have this copyright forever and ever and ever, no backseas, I can still get it back. I can't do it if it's work for hire, but even though I promised you in writing, Outside of a work for hire, I can still get that copyright back, which 
Of course, no film studio wants that to be the case. And, and most publishing companies that have these, uh, these legacy properties want to make sure that that doesn't happen. But for you creators out there, if the contract doesn't say work for hire, it ain't a work for hire unless you're an employee. So, I'm, um, often, I'm, I'm often curious about like paper trails that have gone cold because my father was a novelist, wrote over 200 published works and a good 50, 60% of it was work for hire. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some of it, I really wonder, you know, work for hire for publishing companies that no longer exist in some cases and work for hire for franchises that are no longer going concerns uh as an example now nbc universal still exists so i assume there is no reversion of rights for example of my dad's partridge family novels from the early 70s uh we i couldn't just go out and publish those and a good proof that this stuff lasts forever in the 90s the man from uncle tv series was brief had a brief resurgence on british television and a british paperback company republished my dad's man from uncle novel with no money but changing hands because it was work for hire from 1966 or 67 or whatever uh and i literally you know stumbled across it on ebay and went oh look someone's repu you know uh someone just republished dad's beneath the planet of the apes book uh from 71 and again no money had to change hands because planet of the apes is still wholly owned by 20th century fox uh there's no point at which that stuff ever reverts, right? As long as the as long as the contract said the magic words work for hire, it's work for hire. And as long as the corporate entity that wrote that contract exists, that contract is in force. Yeah. So we often talk about what's called successor um successors in interest. So if a company that has created this work for hire uh, agreement with uh, with a creator and they now own the copyright and then the company goes bankrupt uh, and then the assets are sold off, uh, then those assets can change hands. But from the creator's perspective, the minute it's work for hire, you're not getting it back. You can have it transferred to you um, by the company saying, here you go, I now assign this copyright uh, to you, um, Ms. or Mr. Creator. But uh, let's face it, that very rarely happens unless you put something in the contract. Uh, the other aspect of the work for hire deals is most of them are done in a way that we lawyers call belt and suspenders, which means that if we've messed something up, we still have another way to get that copyright. So in virtually every work for hire agreement that you'll see that's drafted by an attorney, it'll say, you agree it's work for hire, but if a court says it's not, you assign us the copyright. And going back to what I said before, you may wonder, well, well, if you get it either way, why does that distinction matter? Is it just lawyers churning up the billables, writing the words? And, and the answer is it does, because if it's an assigned copyright, that is the one that can be transferred back in the termination of transfer uh, under copyright law. Fascinating. So what are what are the red flags that creators should look for, uh, you know, in a work for hire contract? I mean, just just to, to wrap up work for hire. Sure. Not, it sounds like there's not a lot of uh, 
there's not there's not really any room to maneuver in a work for hire contract. It is what it is. Uh, you should be compensated for it and negotiate that. But ultimately, the IP is not yours, and it will never be yours. Right. So, so I think the the approach here is if you're the creator being presented with a work for hire agreement, um, I think it's always a good idea to sort of ask the other side why. You know, why is this work for hire? And and you know, it's funny because this I know we're not keeping track of how many numbers here, but but this would be a bullet point in and of itself. Um, very often creators are so excited to get a deal that they think they're going to mess something up if they push back. Uh, and uh, and they'll go to mess something up if, oh my goodness, they'll get a lawyer. And I'm not shilling for lawyers here because I do believe that a lot of stuff you can do by yourself. But if you're dealing with a reputable company and you have an agent, you have a lawyer, that just means they're going to take you that much more seriously. And if the company you're dealing with, when you get an attorney, says, oh, wait a minute, oh, now you get lawyers involved, wait, what's the deal here? Then at that point, you should see that not as a yellow, but as a red flag. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, creators are great at what they do. Uh, lawyers, if you get a decent one, should be good at what they do. Uh, and anybody who's in business should not take that uh, in any way is out of the ordinary that you've lawyered up. If anything, it's a sign of professionalism. So, right. uh, so to so to plug that into the work for hire scenario, and and you said it, you ask the why. Why does this? Why do you want work for hire? Because you know my my rate is higher for work for hire. You can <laughs> intimate. Um, and if the answer is, which it is a lot of the times. I, I heard that a work for hire was a good was was what I should do. You know, people don't always know what a work for hire is. And if you say, okay, well, so you want the copyright? Yeah. Okay. So why don't I just assign you the copyright? Okay. Why don't I just grant you a license to the copyright so you could use it in these books? And and if you start seeing it as a creator, as the more you give away of your right, the more you should you should charge. That's helpful. But you also have to understand what each of these distinctions mean. So if someone is hiring you to uh, to draw somebody's book uh, and to create some characters for that book, you might be able to argue that there's really two separate tasks going here, right? One is the creation of the characters and the other is the actual penciling and drawing of the book. And you know, you're not going to hold yourself out and say, well, I'm a character creator. You can say you're a character designer, but, you know, in the comic book field, it's sort of expected that, that as the artist, you're going to come up with these things. But but I've definitely seen deals where writers have said thug one, thug two. I don't know. You just make up whatever right. super bad guys. And in those situations, I think it is appropriate to push back a little and say, I'm happy to do the work and I love doing this kind of thing. But with those characters that I'm creating, you know, anytime you sell those, I should get a piece of that. Right. You know, and make those arguments. You know, it shouldn't yeah, just be for those the, who work the for thing, The thing about the, you know, what costs, it costs more for you to abuse my rights a little bit. You know, reminds me of the old Marx Brothers uh, when Groucho was hiring Chico and Harpo as musicians. And he says, what do you make for playing? $10 an hour. How much you make for not playing? $15 an hour. But we got to reverse. <laughs> Well, what do you get for rehearsing? $20 an hour. What do you get for not rehearsing? Oh, you couldn't afford it. 
uh, <laughs> someone reached out to me recently, uh, not a professional, about ghostwriting, and they literally thought I needed to ghostwrite because otherwise I would own it. They had no idea that they could just hire, you know, do a work for hire thing on it. And it was that classic thing where I said, you know, work for hire costs X number. Work for hire without my name on it is X times a thousand. <laughs> like, you mm -hmm. know, like if you want to take my name off it, holy, sh you are buying me a car. Like it's not, uh, you know, that, that costs the most, <laughs> you know, to disrespect <laughs> my name and career like that. On the, um, I, I, I'm hearing an echo from somebody. Um, on the topic of, uh, you know, should you bring a lawyer in or not? And and, and I know that there is, you know, there, there is uh, fear on a lot of uh, uh, creators' minds when they talk about that. And, and and Thomas, for a lot of the reasons you outlined, is you know, okay, is this, uh, you know, is this company going to back away now? Is it, you know, um, and, and to tell you the truth, there are companies out there who, you know, they don't want to deal with it. It's like, here's our deal, sign it or 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 walk, you know, and but you're 100% right, Thomas, where it's like, those are the companies that are not worth dealing with, right? Um, but every lawyer experience I've had, um, I mean, the the last deal I signed, um, it was, you know, I'm, I, I, you know, of course, I have my entertainment lawyers and every every film, every television thing, uh, they're, they're all in on. Um, I usually have them on the comic stuff, but I, I had a comic thing come up recently and it was like, okay, well, you know, should I bring the lawyers in or not? You know, my lawyer is going to charge me 5%. And then there's the okay. Well, this thing is this thing is pretty simple, and like the deal looks looks perfect to me. So should I just save myself the five percent? I you know like uh, you know I, I'm wrestling with this. And finally, I'm like, it's stupid not to have a lawyer look at this. Let me bring the lawyer on. And so the lawyer comes in, and the first thing the lawyer does is get me a twenty percent pay bump. Uh, and then I had a uh, I had a percentage uh, on on Kickstarters. Also, he came in, he bumps he bumps that up. <laughs> He gets me, uh, you know, he gets me like movie and uh, and TV incentives uh, on the back end with it. And so that lawyer came in and he he paid for himself tenfold. Right. Uh, just went in and you know I, I wasn't going to ask for these things. And and and, and a, a good lawyer knows, you know, when to not push uh, 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 too far, of course. But a good lawyer also knows that okay, well, you don't get it unless you ask, and it usually doesn't hurt to ask. And they know when to ask and how to ask. And often what that means is a 20% pay hike. <laughs> um, but then also he came in and he made sure that, that that everything was safe and everything was sound and that I was protected and I, and I was getting what I should be getting uh, and, and that they were protected and all of that stuff. And it ended up being this like this this great experience. And so um, so in my experience, uh, this is what a lawyer can and should and must bring to the table. And so if you are sitting there asking yourself, like, is it worth the 5% or is it worth this or is it worth that? Uh, in my experience, almost always a resounding yes. So let, let that and, be an endorsement. And, and let me qualify that too. Uh, first of all, I think that that's great. And I, I agree. That's when lawyers are at their best, when they can discover hidden pools of money that you might not have negotiated for yourself. Um, but I think you also have to get the right type of attorney, right? You mentioned you work with entertainment attorneys, uh, transactional attorneys, people who do negotiate contracts. We're real a bit of a different breed than the guy you might see on the billboard and the highway uh, who's talking about how they're gonna, you, you slipped, you fell, it's your fault, who cares? I'll get you the money. That's a, that's a, it's a different personality set and those people may, may often do a disservice to you because if you in the comic book community 
is a is a very small one, right? It's not like the film industry um, where it just you know multinational and so many players. Uh, but the comic book industry, especially in the United States, um, you know, a lot of people know each other and have worked with each other a couple of times. And and if you have somebody who's a table pounder who who comes across that way first, I think that's the area where you need to be a little concerned that if someone is is acting like a bulldog out of the gate, I'm not saying you you should hire somebody who's going to roll over, but um, but there's a lot, I think, that can be done by just literally stating why you need what you need and uncovering, um, you know, where there may be areas of ambiguity and, and areas of, of money and making a reasonable case and not being a jerk. Uh, and yeah. uh, unfortunately, being a jerk is something that some lawyers are are, are very good at. Well, 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 here's the thing: is that this is surgery, right? And and you want somebody coming in with a scalpel, not somebody coming in with a baseball bat, right? Um, <laughs> and, and and so you want to you want to avoid that goon with the baseball bat, you know, uh, because this is microsurgery. Um, I, I agree with that that 100. And and I, I guess my my other endorsement of have a lawyer look at it is. Um, you have dozens of people, uh, maybe that's even an understatement, on Twitter right now uh, uh, screaming about their contracts with a certain company. Mm-hmm. And again, we don't need to go too much into that. Um, what I can tell you is that uh, I don't want to speak for you, Thomas. I was about to say Thomas wouldn't have let you sign that contract. But <laughs> what I will say instead is a good lawyer would not have allowed you to sign that contract. A good lawyer would have taken it apart. And many of the things that you guys are having problems with right now, uh, um, a good lawyer would have taken that apart and put it back together in a way that that you would not be having a lot of the, the, the trouble you're you're having with right uh, uh, you're having right now with these contracts. Um, and and I think that's a very important point. And maybe it's a good good segue because a lot of these contracts that 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 we're seeing, you know, in the news right now, uh, uh, in the conversation, these are contracts for creator-owned projects, um, which of course are, are 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 different in any number of ways than mm-hmm. uh, a, a work for hire. Um, right. So why don't you take us through, you know, again, what are the um, what do we need to look out for in a creator-owned contract, and how is that different? In- so before we even get to the publishing contract for a creator-owned property, uh, which is sort of that, that holy grail, if you will, of, of what you know indie creators want, um, there's, there's a bunch of work that you have to do as a creator contractually prior to that point. If you're someone who's written it, drawn it, done everything yourself, it's your original IP, then you're probably good to go. But if you've based it on another story, then you need to license that story. And if you've worked with with another creator, like an artist, which is uh, very often the case, you know, you'll have somebody who's really good at writing and somebody who's really good uh, at the graphic aspects of it, and then they'll combine and work together. Um, You have to take a look at that relationship and you have to have a contract that governs it. So it's going to be one of three kinds of relationships in general. Uh, You're either going to be collaborating together. And so the contract that you have is going to look largely like a partnership contract. And I can talk on that uh, in a moment. Um, You're going to be hiring um, some, somebody to do uh, something for you, or both of you guys are going to be um, working for a third person. 
Um, but the two that I see the most commonly are when you're collaborating or when you're the writer typically is hiring the, uh, the artist to draw the book. And the concerns are a little different depending upon if it's collaborative effort or if it's a, um, a hired effort, a hired gun. And very often the, the needs of, of, you know, the worst part of both contracts can often get combined. So if it's a collaboration agreement and both sides are putting in their hard earned work um, and they're both going to reap, you know, some similar amount of money, um, very often it's actually the artist who may be paid a little bit more um, because arguably, and this is no disservice to writers, uh, I'm a writer myself, um, it, it can take longer to ink, to draw and ink a book than it can to, to write a script, you know, the Alan Moores aside. Um, and so very often the artist will get a little bit more than, than the writer. The writer might make an argument that, wait a minute, but you're drawing, but not only am I writing, but I'm also um, promoting it, selling it to publishers. I'm acting as a de facto agent for the project. So that's where I'm earning my, my 50 of the 50, 50, but, but you, but if it's relatively equal in part, then the main concerns in that kind of agreement, uh, have to do with how are you handling the copyright? Is it, if it's a shared copyright ownership, what happens if you guys can't get along after a while, you know, and, and this is, you know, it's like a prenup agreement, right? It's a nothing kills romance like talking about prenup. But for a creative partnership, you really sort of have to think about that because the last thing you want to do is have all your money, you know, disappear into the lawyer's uh, bank accounts when you guys fight something out in court. It's a lot better if you have some very specific ways of handling um, the copyright ownership, such as one person being able to buy out the other person if things go wrong, um, or splitting it and saying, okay, you can use the artwork and you can use the script and we each take their ball and they go home. Um, but dealing with that in the contract is going to save you so much time and, and agita if things go wrong. Um, another thing that's going to save that relationship, believe it or not, and it's not even a legal thing, um, but it's having a very specific calendar that you're working towards. Uh, I will say that the majority of times that, that collaborations go down the tubes is when somebody is just overbooked and not doing the job that, um, that they promised they would do. And because it's a collaboration, it suddenly feels like, oh, well, you know, we're just kind of doing this and, and hopefully we'll make money. I'll, I'll, I'll put it on the back burner while I do the, the work that, that I'm being paid to do. And I get it, you know, we all have to make rent or mortgage, but, um, but if you don't have a calendar that you've both contractually agreed to work along, it can very quickly sort of spin out of control um, and people can feel before you've even, you know, gotten your first 22 page floppy that, that uh, this is not a relationship that works. Um, if you are on the other side and you're hiring somebody, so I'm going to pretend you're a writer and you're hiring uh, an artist. Now you can make a greater claim, I think, to the ownership of that copyright because you're paying somebody a page rate, hopefully, and hopefully a profit participation. This may be a, 
a property that you've written and that you've lived with for a while and you're basically looking for an artist to draw it so you can then take the property and then go try and set it up with a publishing company. And if that's the case, then again, deadlines are important. Talking about the copyright ownership is really important, whether it's a work for hire or an assigned copyright. Um, and talking about, and as you said, um, you know, a few moments ago, the how the artist is going to get paid in different for different um, media forms, right? So if it gets flipped to a film and TV option by Amazon, let's say, or Netflix, um, to what extent does the artist's um, creative efforts count towards what will invariably be a TV show that doesn't necessarily look like what was drawn on the page. And there's a lot of discussion back and forth there. And depending on who I'm repping, I can make the argument on either side. Um, but from the artist's perspective, hey, you wouldn't have gotten this to Amazon if my artwork didn't look great and if it, it didn't sizzle off the page. Uh, from the writer's perspective, they may see it as, well, look, they're getting real actors, not your characters, and they're gonna change up the costume anyway, and they might even gender swap a character or two. So it's really my IP, my, my writing that's getting us there. So it's appropriate if you're from the artist, coming from the artist's perspective, to, um, to try and work in some, some form of passive payment. So if the writer is getting X tens of thousands, hopefully hundreds of thousands of dollars, for this property as the next big thing, then you're going to get, you're always going to get a piece of that. And worrying about the definitions of what is a net profit, how do you compute it, what is overhead, all of those things which make many people's heads spin, that's where you need the attorney to really help out and help you define what that means. Because um, many times a, com a comic book contract that just says you'll get x percent of the net profits if it doesn't distinguish what that means how you define that net profit then i as the publisher can may be able to take out a lot of stuff and call it an expense before i declare a net profit and you end up seeing very little so those two contracts the um the collaboration agreement and the services agreement uh, are really really critical to get under your belt before you even get to the publisher and and start negotiating that contract itself. I, I do feel like it's worth talking about the emotional aspect of it, for want of a better word, of people feeling that they've been fairly treated. Yes. I'm trying to remember what band it is. It might be R.E.M., where everyone got songwriting credit, including the drummer, even if they didn't really do anything, but create a drum fill, uh, whereas you've got The Who, where Pete Townsend owns all those songs. Mm. And I know, you know, you've, I've seen, there's a documentary, famous documentary on The Who, where an interviewer says, you know, being The Who has made you all fabulously rich. And <laughs> Keith Moon literally jumps out of his chair and rips Pete Townsend's shirt off <laughs> out of sheer rage at how much richer Pete Townsend is than him and he Pete very calmly says to the interviewer you know when you write the songs you tend to make a little more money than everybody else <laughs> and you know there's that thing of like what's more important to you getting every squeezing every penny out of a project you possibly can or making sure that your collaborators are happy and feel like you are taking care of them 
I did something last year that I'd never really done before. I did an eight-page thing for an anthology, and it was very much based on a story of mine that was very personal to me and didn't have any seed money for it, brought on an artist who I didn't know but really loved their work. And the agreement I made with her was that she would get 80% of what we were being paid for it, but I would retain 100% of the copyright to it because it's mine and eight pages doesn't buy you the whole enchilada. That said, I'm pitching it right now. And if it was picked up by a publisher, I would happily give her 50% just so that we'd be both equally invested in what we're doing rather than her feeling like, ah, this is just something I'm doing for some dude I barely know and I don't care about it. I think you there's a there is something to be said for it sounds it sounds bad to say buying people's loyalty, but honoring their commitment yeah. and seeing if they are like saying with them, look, we're gonna take this plunge together and I wanna honor that you're taking it with me. And I wanna mm -hmm. honor that you're time is valuable um and and making sure that your collaborator has not agreed to something they're pretty fucking mad about but they well, but they they yeah. took it because eh, you know better than not taking it but they're sitting there going i can't believe avaloni owns 80 percent of this friggin' thing while i'm here drawing it two in the morning you know yeah i i, I mean I've, I've done i i think that um i mean your 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 artists they are the people that are going to get this thing across the finish line, right? Like you, you have nothing to shop, you have nothing to sell until there was a great book done. Right. And so if you do not make certain concessions, if you're not paying them a great rate, if they don't have a stake in things, if they're not being paid up front, um, then necessarily you become not in you know, the second, the third, the fourth, the 10th priority, right? Anytime there is paying work, Right. Um, stuff that is going to put food on their table and translate into real, very real money, um, uh, that becomes the first priority. You get, and, and then suddenly a book that should take a month uh, takes three months, six months. Uh, I've, I've seen it happen. It goes away completely, right? Um, and so it's about honoring their time, and 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 that's how you really get things across. And like you, Avaloni, I mean, I've I've often made that. Okay, well, let's give you a percentage. I mean, I remember. Um, you know, I cut a deal with a, um, uh, I was in a financial spot, um, didn't have the money I needed to get a book off the ground at the time. Um, I had an artist who desperately wanted something to draw. And I went to him and I said, hey, let's be 50% partners in this, which I normally wouldn't do. Um, but that was a big concession right off the bat. Like, we're going to take this, we're going to set it up. If it becomes a movie, and I'm pretty good at that, um, we're going to be 50-50 partners in this. There was all that. And then the other concession I made was, look, um, we are going to, we'll split proceeds, we'll split profits 50-50, but what would, the first thing I'm going to do for you is that your page rate, you're going to get it first. First dollar goes to your page rate. So before I get a dime, you are going to get your page rate for every page you've drawn. That, that was a big deal. Um, as this thing drug out, right, um, it, it became clear that we were going to get paid some money for this, so I wasn't worried about it. Um, and I'm looking at my bank account and I had some money in there. And so, so I'm like, Hey, you know, that page rate that you're going to get in six months or whatever, I'm, you know, I'm going to pay it to you right now. I, I know your family needs some money. I'm doing all right. You know, let me give you your page rate. And so I just went out, you know, straight paid him for the issue. Right. And, 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 you know, he was, he was 
he was happy. He was having the best time. It was the best project he'd, he'd ever worked on. He was confident that I was taking care of him and I was worried about his family eating and, 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 and I was valuing his time. And sometimes just concessions like these, um, they breathe life into a project. You end up seeing it on the page. The work is better. The work comes faster. Um, when you need revisions, they are excited to do them for you. Um, uh, when you need an extra thing for a Kickstarter uh, uh, backer, they'll draw it in their sleep and not charge you a dime for it. Um, uh, you can't put a price on morale and on, uh, on, on the, you know, the, this sort of like ineffable health, uh, uh, you know, sort of like the health of like a project soul. Right. And, and, and this is what you're contributing to when you do these things. And, um, and, you know, there are a lot of people that are, you know, they want to, they want to count pennies. They want to, <laughs> you know, they, 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 they and, and, and that gets you nowhere in this business. And, and so to that that point, um, you know, it's one of the problems very often with the collaboration agreement where everybody's contributing sweat equity. I mean, it may sound great out, out of the gate when everybody's in that honeymoon phase of a project to say, hey, 50-50 and we're both contributing. But unless there's money that's going to the artist, as you point out, you know, people need to pay their rent. People need to, to put food on the table. So the paying work is always then going to take present. I, I tend to think the best way to get out a book is to pay an artist to do it, you know, and to make sure they get paid. And, you know, 100%, everything you said about making sure the, the artists get paid and, and treating them well, because there's also sort of a, you know, an, an industry ethos, if you will. You know, one of the things, one of the reasons I, I like working in the comic book industry is for the most part, you know, certain publishers and people aside, for the most part, I think that people want to play well together and they want to treat each other with respect. We've all, those of us who've been in the comic book industry for a while, we, we've all heard the horror stories of, of how the greats were treated and we don't want to repeat those, um, those issues. Um, you know, in sharp contrast, I hate to say, but the film and TV, you know, I, I started out in the film and TV industry and it was very cutthroat. And, you know, I almost didn't know what to do when I started working in comic books. And I was like, wait a minute, you're, you're actually, considering what I want. I don't have to fight for what I want. And so it's a, it's a nice, uh, you know, it, it's, it's very refreshing. And, and I think you're absolutely right. You know, paying somebody can really go a long way to engendering a much more productive relationship. Um, you know, and it's interesting, you know, I want to, I want to jump off maybe now or, or later on, but I want to talk a little bit at some point in this conversation about that, that nexus between Hollywood and comics. And what I think a big concern of a lot of creators are is, um, you know, are publishers just trying to acquire my work so it can be this IP feeding house into, uh, you know, into Netflix or Amazon or, or whoever um, without actually giving much consideration to how it's actually published, you know? And those of us who, who you know, really like comic books, um, like to read them. Sure, we like to see them in movies and TV shows, but but there's a real value in the comic book itself um, that is often missed by some of the newer publishers that just want to take the book and, you know, and hand it to a literary agent. Sure. We can definitely, we can definitely get into that as, uh, I mean, just to wrap up what we were talking about before, I think I've always been baffled by people who are super greedy about money that doesn't actually exist yet. Right. right. Like who are, 
who are so nothing is nothing so obsessed <laughs> with money, money that's yeah. not on the table that right, may never right. be on the table. It, you know, I always think, I always use the expression "rich people problems." It's like I should be so lucky to be mad that my partner is getting fifty percent of the hundreds of thousands of dollars that we're making when it's a TV show. Like that mm-hmm. would be really nice if I could be bitter about that. I remember Connery talking about he would go to dinner with the two guys, the two producers who started the Bond movies, Broccoli and Saltzman, and they're zillionaires sharing the rights to the biggest intellectual property in the world at the time. And he said, I could just see them sitting there thinking, this son of a bitch has half of my money. He's like, that was their only, like, they were millionaires a zillion times over. And he's like, they would sit at dinner, hating, seething with rage that the other guy had half their money. And it's like, just, man, avoid that situation as much as humanly possible. So, so uh, you know, so you're, you're getting your book together and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we're, we're going to jump back into this narrative. And, you know, so you, you, you have your components, right? You've worked things out with your collaborators. You have an agreement that, that you're all happy with and you get the book done and you take it to a publisher. Um, let's talk about that a little bit. Let's talk about, you know, uh, what do we need to look out for there? You know, what what should that contract look like? Um, you know, what are mm-hmm. our red flags, all that stuff. So you've done all your homework. You've registered the copyright. You've, yeah, you've gone to a Comic-Con or you've hooked up with somebody on, on Twitter. You've reached out to somebody on Twitter and they've, and they've liked it. You've sent in the submission. And, and let me pause there. The how you submit it is part of, you know, is part of this process. Uh, and if it's submitted through an agent or an attorney, or maybe, you know, in person, wonderful. Um, what you do need to look out for is very often there are less than scrupulous comp companies out there that say here, sign this waiver and send in your, your work. Um, and you know, some of them have been known to take uh ideas inspiration or take their own sweet time and you have to sort of look at those waivers too i did read one a few years ago that said by submitting this you agree that it is uh, that you have no ownership rights and i I said just back you know don't back away run away from 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 this um publishing company because right now you know it's kind of like the gold rush or those of us who are who are old enough to remember the 90s you know uh internet boom um it's it sort of feels like that a little bit in the comic industry where everybody thinks that they can be a publisher um but let's assume that you've gotten to a reputable publisher what does that contract look like um in essence and you don't need a lawyer to tell you this um it the publishing agreement is the right they're getting the right to publish this book in exchange for some type of compensation back to you right that's the 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 basic you know concept of a publishing agreement but um what they're often do above board now more than that i should say uh is you'll very often get not just a publishing agreement that i'll talk in about in detail but you'll also be handed an option agreement for the audiovisual film TV rights to your comic at the same time. Now I'm going to put that aside a little bit and we'll talk about that later, but, but it, to me, that changes the deal quite significantly. If a requirement, uh, a condition precedent as, as we attorneys say to signing the uh, publishing agreement is, you know, to make sure that you are, you, we're not going to give you a publishing agreement unless you also sign this option purchase agreement. 
um, because now we're talking about something very different than just publishing a comic book. Um, so the on the publishing agreement side, before we get to that other part, you have to make sure that uh, A, you have all the rights, um, B, that they're promising to publish it within a certain period of time, or you're going to get those rights back. So you can't be in a locked up situation where no one is publishing your work for very long. You have to make sure that when your contract goes, when your comic book goes out of print, and we have to define what does that mean in this digital world? If I can, if I, as the publishing company, can just keep on shooting something onto Comixology, then it may never be technically out of print. So we have to define what does that mean when it goes out of print? Because when it goes out of print, those rights should revert back to you, the owner. Um, more of them, the. Yep. I, I, I'm muted. Let me underline this point because there are a ton of people on Twitter right now, these people we were talking about before that are dealing with this very same thing that Thomas is talking about. So pay attention. Right. Sorry to interrupt you, Thomas, and sorry to interrupt you while muted. <laughs> <laughs> that was the dead air, folks. Yes. There you um, go. Good radio. You know, uh, what this means is that you have to know when your book is in print and when it isn't. And when it is out of print and you have to define what that means then you should be getting the rights back. Uh, again, that's there's a big issue with that when it comes to plugging that in with the option purchase agreement too that we're going to talk about in a bit. Um, but knowing when when they have to publish it, within what time frame, um, what other rights do they have? Do they have the right to turn it into foreign language versions? Do they have the right to uh, contract with other agents in different territories internationally, sell it in different uh, regions? You know, I think it's absolutely fair for most publishers to say, look, we want to be able to sell this book in whatever language uh, throughout the world as a book or, or to anthologize it um, and uh, to sell it in soft cover or hard cover or put it on Comixology or whatever digital platform, as long as you, the creator, are getting paid well for, um, you know, for that uh, for that service, if you will, or, or, or an exchange for that. Um, where it gets a little wonky is when those terms are not defined and uh, and you don't know how much a sub-agent is charging or you don't understand how they're computing their money. Because at the end of the day, it's one thing to give the rights, but it's another thing to get paid. So, um, you know, I wish I could say that it is common for uh indie creators to get big advances up front, but it's just, it's not a common thing, or at least, you know, not uh, not something that I see a lot of. Um, so where you want to really turn your attention to is what is the compensation model there? So if they sell a book, and, and this is where, uh, you know, I know we're not doing PowerPoints, but, uh, but this is where there are so many different compensation models out there that it'll make your head spin. Um, you know, I'll start with the easiest. Uh, one type of way that a creator gets paid is if uh, the book is sold, the publishing company takes out its certain expenses that are defined, and then you split whatever the rest is, let's say 50-50. Um, and that's a pretty easy to understand model. You have other companies that say, okay, you'll get 
a percentage of the retail price. Uh, so whatever the cover price is, you're going to get a percentage of that. Um, the advantage of that is you, if you know how many units are sold and you know how to do a percentage of those units of the cost of these units sold, you can easily compute what your take should be because it's not going through this, um, this definition of what the publishing company can, can deduct before it declares that, that profit split. So a lot of the back and forth, um, when you're negotiating these contracts often has to do with well what what can you the publishing company what can they take out what can they expense and then do they it's understandable to say well the cost of printing and shipping sure um but costs of bring it to a convention huh well is that going to be amortized with uh, is it going to be split with other properties uh the cost of keeping the lights on at the publishing company. No, that's overhead. That should be the cost of doing business. But but these definitions you know, are very often so vague that yeah. you as the creator have to sort of push back and say, what do you mean by a net profit? And, and here's where you kind of creators often run into this, the, the wall of themselves, if you will, where you know many creators don't like negotiating. They don't like legalese. They don't like doing the computation. And so it's it's easier, if you will, to see something which says 50% of the net profits, full stop, than something which is a multi-page definition of what a new profit, uh, net profit is. But in ambiguity, <laughs> you know, lies, you know, an opportunity for the publishing company um, to to nickel and dime the creator. So, you know, a, a longer definition of net profits as eye rollingly boring as that is to read is often better because it has more specificity to it. So, well, yeah, you're talking about movie math, right? I mean, on, on paper, Titanic, you know, according to the studio is still not made money, right? <laughs> so, so, I mean, that's a situation you can, you can end up in. And the beauty of the other model, you know, is you get a piece of every sale, right? right? You are, you are guaranteed a check. Um, yeah. no matter what, and, and you can, you can go to diamond, you can get your sales numbers and it becomes very clear to see how much you're owed. Um, and again, there are a lot of people on Twitter right now who are wrestling with, well, I had this very successful book and I have not had a check. Um, <laughs> you know, so, um, so that's one really easy way to kind of, uh, to sort through it. Um, but a much more complicated, uh, uh, problem that, than, than I, I'm, I'm making that. And up. another way to sort of, to, to address that net profit issue is to make sure that it, every contract from the publisher that grants you a portion of these net profits, um, has what's called an audit provision. So not only does it say, yes, you get X percent of Y, um, whether it's from the cover price or from the net profit, but once a year, you creator can come in and audit those books, not our entire company's books, but the books that are pertinent to your book, you get a chance to, on your dime, hire a CPA, have them come into our office, go over the books. And if they find a discrepancy greater than 7%, uh, 10%, then we, the publishing company, must accelerate all those payments, give you all that money that we should have paid you, uh, as well as pay for your CPA. So, you know, it's a pretty standard provision to have in publishing agreements. A lot of times they won't offer that up, but if you were to push back and say, let me come into your offices and audit you once a year, a lot of creators that I've talked to 
think, oh my goodness, the publisher's gonna balk at that. I mean, that seems so presumptuous to say that you're gonna sick an army of accountants on them. And you know, the reality is that, uh, that it's an absolutely standard uh, grant to, to get is the audit provision. So at least you can double check their math and make sure you're getting paid what you should be getting paid. <clears throat> I, I had an indie comic that I was uh, a couple of publishers were interested in, and ultimately we decided to go uh, and self-publish it. In terms of it, it was a Kickstarter book that we carved up into four floppies, and it did okay. But when publishers were interested in it, they wanted to give us a very very low stipend against a hundred percent of profit on the floppies and 50% on the trades and hundred percent sounds great, but I was like, but I don't know what you're going to consider. You know, I, 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 we didn't get as far as me saying, okay, so tell me what you are going to pay for uh, printing and shipping on the, like what, what expenses are you going to, cause I know that hundred percent is net, not gross. You're not mm -hmm. actually going to give me, Every dime you make in comic shops, that's impossible. The comic shop is taking some of it. Diamond is taking some of it. I know how little is left after the comic shop and Diamond take their part. And then we've got shipping and printing. And then what's left after that sure isn't going to feel like 100% of profits. So I ultimately said no. But the other thing, the thing that I really, I can't wrap my head around, and maybe there's no legal answer to this question is I really wanted to say quantify for me what your company is going to do for me as a company that I can't do for myself quantify for me the energy you're going to what are you going to put into the promotion of this book and are you then going to am I also going to be paying against my profit for the one page ad in previews magazine are you going to charge me for the PR guy that you bring on to like, what are you amortizing against my comic book? I mean, as you said, overhead shouldn't, overhead's overhead yeah. and I shouldn't be paying, the receptionist salary should not be coming out of my comic book. But I'm also always, I always feel like so many companies just do a, such a shitty job of promotion. And I always wanna find a way, how can I, how is there a way is there a legal way to quantify what are you doing for me aside from putting your company logo in the upper left hand corner of my cover like what am i what are you as a company able to do for me aside from that one thing so i think the answer is yes although to your point it doesn't happen very often i mean is there a right. way yes you create obligations on on the behalf of the publisher that they must do X number of print ads over the period of your comic book run. They must um, take it and, you know, and, and do the diamond catalog thing and pay to, to have the big spread and, and to roll it out at the comic cons and maybe buy, you know, Google ad placements and, you right. know, so, so you can definitely put in a laundry list of things for them to do. Uh, they will, respond by wanting to shove those costs onto you, um, right. which uh, I think your response can be, well, okay, let's 
split those costs maybe and we both recoup that is get the money back you know at the same time it's not that you know your recoupment is now you know after they've recouped so usually recouped in in pari passu is the legal term is at the same time um and i think that's a fair and reasonable approach uh to do that um and and i wish it weren't the case but but you're absolutely right you know a lot of comic book companies um they're they're great at dealing with printers and they know how to deliver to diamond and they know how to acquire uh, a comic book but the act of getting it front and center you know absent a kickstarter <laughs> you know is right. is really not something that that they're very good at um you know i wonder whether we're not in the middle of a sea change in this though right because for what 30 some odd years 40 years you've had this you know a direct market of the the comic book industry and now with with um increasingly you know uh, numerous uh offerings of ways to to perceive comics digitally to to deliver them digitally um I, i'm wondering how much longer the publishing company is going to be seen as a necessity by the creator especially those of us who are fairly digitally savvy and you know those of us who are younger who are even more digitally savvy and know uh how to how to work you know search engine optimization and and google adwords and you know i mean these are these are no longer super specialized areas now for and and being with a i always say being with a publisher is the paper version of google of you know search engine optimization in the sense that ultimately what you're buying is being further up in the diamond in the previews book or being in the back. Like that's the Mm -hmm. one thing dark horse image IDW can do for you is you're in the first hundred pages rather (laughs) in the last 300 pages of that phone book that everyone gets once a month. But it does beg the question, is that worth, giving up that percentage of your profits is that worth signing over x amount of your you know uh media rights etc in a lot of ways it's not and and we've talked about this a lot on the show where it's like i mean i mean thomas you're you're absolutely right where it's like i mean we're we are we are strapped to like the nose of a rocket headed to to where you're talking about i mean it's already happened in the music business right i mean you know it it used to be well you had to get if 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 one of five uh uh music companies didn't you know want to put your album in a record store you, you were nothing right but um but ben napster then you know LimeWire, then all of these other things, and then the iTunes revolution, and and now I mean I haven't bought I haven't bought an album in like ten years. I listen to all my music on Spotify or Amazon Music or or Apple. You know I, I don't even download individual tracks anymore. I come in and I say you know Alexa play Mr. Jones or whatever, and and she plays it. You know she might play it now because I have one in here. Um, uh, but you know, it used to be that again, you needed to go into a studio and spend tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars to cut an album and get it out. Now people, they do it, you know, in a room like this in their house and they upload it to Bandcamp and, and, and then, you know, uh, and the audience is so fractured that you don't have to sell 10 million albums to be a success anymore. If you sell 10,000 albums, you're a success. Um, and we're seeing seeing it in comics where it's like you know as a as an indie creator, it is very hard to make money as an indie creator, right? 
Um, I have made so much more money on Kickstarter <laughs> than I ever have putting books in comic shops. And so here's the thing is I, I am not, you know, I did not go to, to, you know, source point and put, uh, uh, suicide jockeys in the comic shop to, to make money. Um, it looks like I'm going to make some money. I'm not, I'm not, not going to make a lot of money. I'm not going to get rich putting, putting this in a, in a comic shop. Um, you know, it, it is one, it is a nostalgia thing, right? It's like, uh, you've made it, you're in a comic shop, you're, 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 you're in, you know, you're, you're playing NFL ball, right? There is a cachet. Um, there is something about a ladder that you're climbing, right? If you're, if you are exclusively a, a Kickstarter personality or a guy who puts your work on comiXology, you ain't, you ain't writing for Marvel, right? Uh, you have to climb a ladder, you know, to, to Marvel. Um, you know, usually you, you put out a couple of books with smaller publishers, then, uh, then maybe you get your vault book or your, um, or your aftershock book. Um, maybe you get a boom book and then that's when, you know, that's when Marvel starts looking hard, uh, hard at you. You know what I'm saying? Like, and so if you don't do that, if you don't put a series of books, uh, 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 you know, that, that are costing you a lot of money, most likely, <laughs> um, then you will, you, you're, you're not gonna, you're not gonna reach that summit right and so a lot of us a lot of this is like paying your dues right um uh but the model is changing so uh uh, uh so radically and, and, and so rapidly um the the audience is fracturing everything is going digital i wonder what the road to marvel looks like in 10 years or even five years or two years it's changing you know because again like because because getting in the diamond catalog doesn't mean that much anymore because DC's gone and Marvel's going to be gone, and right. uh, and what does it mean anymore? And and you got books, you got books making two million dollars on Kickstarter, um, yeah. and and so and so we are like um, there is a there is a renaissance, there is a fucking massive shakeup happening right now, um, and it's all been exacerbated by the uh, by the pandemic, by yeah. pencils down and publishers falling apart. And uh, and comic shops closing, and um, and and man, that's poured gasoline on this fire that was already kind of raging out of control, right? And I think that the the big takeaway there uh, is that we all have to be self promoters, and that's why I think that those of us who are very familiar with with these digital tools um, often stand a better chance of getting to the marvels. You know, I'll uh, I'm going to hide the the identity of this client, because I haven't gotten his permission to tell this story, but I'll tell the story. Um, I, I represent a client who's a, a, a successful musician in a certain genre. Um, and uh, he's on Twitter and has a little bit of a Twitter presence. And he started back and forth with, um, with somebody from IDW who liked his music. And because of that background, he was able to sort of quickly put his book uh, in front of IDW and they've had a great relationship for, uh, for a, a long time now. Um, but I've also had uh, clients who didn't have that benefit of a, you know, of a prior, you know, um, prior cachet. fame, if you yeah, will, yeah. cachet, um, who were able to just do the, the Twitter thing, you know, like a Renaissance painter. I mean, these guys are amazing. Uh, and because of that, they were also able to get 
to a an IDW um, or you know those those sort of the mid the mid tier uh, publishing companies. And I think it really does come down again to a numbers game, but maybe not a diamond numbers game, but now a how many subs do you have, how many followers do you have? I mean, I'm sure there's that's part of the reasons of why you guys you know do this podcast. It's you know it, you have to be out right right out there doing that stuff. Um, Absolutely. And um, and those who are able to do it better are going to really sort of take advantage of this uh, of this sea change because I think the days of of whether it's a publishing company or a Hollywood studio just sort of anointing you you know with you know blessing you with with the open door and now now you have it made I think you constantly have to be um, promoting. You know, I mean, there's that great Alec Baldwin line in Glen Gary, Glen Ross, you know, is it uh, always be closing? I think it's maybe always be promoting is probably the, um, you know, the phrase going forward in the in the 21st century for creators. That um, that Kenny G book at IDW is amazing, by the way. Isn't it Rafi? I'm pretty sure it's Rafi. Look, that's a that's a uh, it's a revelation I had about a decade ago. I was making short films with an actor friend of mine who had about twenty five thousand followers on Twitter, and they were absolutely just art project short films. Put one on YouTube. He posted about it. A couple of hours later, it had 26,000 views. And I went, oh, oh, that's what Twitter is for. I had no idea. I was wondering what Twitter was for. Well, that's what it's for. Yeah, it's free yeah. advertising for your shit. I mean, we, we had we had, uh, we had a couple of really big um, comic uh, TikTokers uh, on a show a couple of months back, Panda Red. And, you know, it was a guy who, I mean, he's just a dude, you know. And uh, one day on TikTok, he had... I don't know, a thousand followers. And then he posted a funny Batman video and um, a couple of funny Batman videos uh, later, he had half a million and who knows where he is now. <laughs> he may be up around a million, but, but, but our friends at, uh, at Comic Core who, um, uh, who um, they're kind of our video um, uh, host for, um, for this podcast. Um, they, they were contacted by the, uh, the Baltimore Comic Con uh, this, this past uh, week or so, and, and, and they were invited to participate in the, as a partner in the, the Baltimore Comic Con. But then they kind of slid in, hey, do you think you could get Panda Red on? <laughs> you know? And it was really, you know, Comic Core was invited to the Baltimore Comic Con kind of, uh, you know, as a backdoor to uh, get Panda Red at the, uh, the Baltimore Comic Con. So, so here's the thing is Panda Red, a guy who makes funny Batman videos on TikTok, um, is going to be a featured guest at uh, the Baltimore Comic Con if he wants to, and uh, and Abalone and I will be sitting at home. Yeah, Ned, they will never ask. Me. <laughs> they, yeah, just they will never, yeah. never ask me. It's fine. Six, uh, yeah, six Ringo Award nominations, a win. Uh, you know, but but I wasn't invited. Um, but Panda Red is is on the docket. So yeah, always always be promoting. Maybe maybe we should be making uh, funny Batman videos. But and that you know, and it's also worth saying that you know, aside from just a lawyer. There's a reason why lawyers, agents, and managers exist. And it's to take the emotion, the desperation, and the fear. What it, I'm a relatively shameless, arrogant dude. What it takes out of me to write a convention and say, I'm famous, invite me to your convention. I am exhausted after writing that two-line email, and I feel like I should go hang myself. 
because it's so horrible that I just had to do that. And, but that you need the guy, the woman, the person saying, hey, Avalone deserves, you know, a bigger percentage of this. He deserves X, Y, and Z. You should give it to him. Like, it, it's so hard when it's you. And there's a reason why representatives exist. There's a reason why successful people have them. Um, you we, know. We, 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 we live in a buddy cop world, right? Yeah. <laughs> there's always good cop and there's always bad cop and very few people want to be bad cop. A creator always wants to be good cop. You know, uh, they always want to be that smiling, approachable person and you need bad cop. Bad cop gets shit done. Well, 90% of the time, you know, what I hear back is sure. Great. Fine. Whatever. After I put all this like tension into it, but it's so much better to just, you know, not be the I had a I had a screenwriter friend who told me once that he never said no to anyone who wanted to hire him. He would say yes in the meeting, get in his car, call his agent and say, call them and say no for me. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I don't that's want exactly the that's exactly the right way to do it. I mean, part of my yeah. standard spiel when a client is is signing up with me is I say, look, part of what you're paying me for is to be the bad guy. So uh, I'll negotiate as best as I can, but if at any point in this you think a deal point that that is not going where you wanted it, it hits you funny, then just let me know and I will be the one who says that. Or if the person says, why didn't the deal go down that way, then just blame it on your lawyer. You know, yeah. so it's it's absolutely an appropriate and necessary part because as creatives, you don't ever want to be seen, you know, as that hard to work with person, you know? And, um, you know, before we leave, uh, the, the the world of Twitter too far behind. I, I, I wanted to sort of throw in something that um, that I have seen a lot that's sort of the, the dark side of what creators can encounter on Twitter. Uh, and that is the, um, when you go on Twitter because you're upset about a company or a person, maybe there's been some, you know, serious, you know, allegations there, you know, somebody is, is doing something extremely sexually inappropriate or harassing you. And then you go on a Twitter tear and you, and you start to tweet out uh, all of the things that, that you hate about this particular person. And uh, I've had at least five or six um, clients or potential clients in the, in the past year um, come to me because they've been sued by the person that they've gone on a Twitter tear against and, and been sued for libel. So, um, so something to, 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 to keep in the back of your mind is we're promoting and we're living on Twitter 24 seven. Um, you know, it can, it can feel falsely like it's this big conversation of just your buddies uh, and something you might say to somebody, you know, in confidence, that ain't Twitter, right? Twitter is not that. And if you, and if you attack somebody, you know, it's like that old um, news, uh, you know, motto, which is if it bleeds, it leads. And so, you know, the more incendiary a thread gets, the more likes, unfortunately, gets the more it gets spread around. And unless you're, you can absolutely point to all of your statements as being either opinion, you know, and clearly opinion, um, or factually based. If you've called somebody, let's say, a, you know, a, a rapist, uh, and they haven't committed and they haven't done that, uh, or you mean it in terms of art, they're raping my art, and that's clearly opinion. If you're saying something that isn't 
true, although that person may be a bad guy, you're exposing yourself to some real liability there in because you've now broadcast what may be a libelous statement. Uh, and it my heart goes out because I have a lot of you know creators who have unfortunately been taken advantage of um, by somebody or another. But you know if you're not phrasing it in a way, it gives the other side some leverage to you know to come at you uh, in court and and that just you know makes it all the worse you know that you're now having to defend uh, something. So you know be careful out there, kids. It's Twitter. You know it's really sort of that's that's the, the takeaway here. That's, that's good advice, and there are definitely. I, I I don't think it's a great place to fight that kind of that nope. kind of battle. The somebody cheated me battle. The you know the someone's reputation battle. Uh, you know it's it's one thing to uh, to report factual, provable things, mm -hmm. and it's another thing to you know to repeat gossip that you heard in a public sphere is a, is a tricky, tricky thing. That said on private threads, you know, off the public conversation, I keep a list, <laughs> you know, like I, you know, of, of all of the people who, you know, uh, who I've been told privately, I should not work with, I should avoid, who, you know, yeah, uh, well, here, here's the thing is like the comics business is such a small pond, right. And everybody knows, you know, um, uh, you know, there was, um, you know, again, we don't need to mention any names, but, you know, there was a there was a big blow up on, on Twitter about somebody recently. And, and we all knew we had heard the same stories for, I don't know, two, three, four years. You know, everybody knew everybody talks. So so there's often no need to uh, to go on Twitter and, uh, and make a big spectacle of it. Right. Everybody knows and everybody ends up paying a bill for it already anyway. Um, and it is, uh, it is much better had, you know, at a, in a private conversation, you know, amongst creators, um, uh, and, and, you know, then, then said, uh, you know, in a public forum like that, I agree. Um, yeah. there was, there, there, there was one other contract thing that I don't want to leave behind, um, sure. that, I, that I think is important. If, if I see a contract, um, where, I am giving my creator-owned uh, uh, property over to a company in perpetuity, <laughs> forever. Um, I am on guard, you know. And there are ways in which that can work and and, and be made to uh, to to you know. Again, like if I'm doing that, I, I I want more than than let's say if uh, if I have the option for it to, to come back to me later. But what I have been able to do recently in my contracts is negotiate something where after three years, after five years, we come back to the table, uh, meaning me and the publisher, and we decide, are we going to continue this relationship, right? If it's going well, then great. Let's let's sign on for another year, another three years, another five years. Let's keep this thing in stores. If I don't like the way things are looking, if they don't like the way things are looking, then then we walk away and I have my IP and, and, and you know, and of course, like they're you know, perhaps certain provisions that, you know, uh, that need to be negotiated, uh, uh, you know, in the event of, of, a, of a break, of a divorce. Uh, um, but, but, but that has become very important to me with, with, with again, the things that are, that are being talked about on Twitter right now with these contracts that lock you in for life. Um, uh, and, you know, the good companies uh, are just building this in without people asking. If you go and you sign a deal, if you sign a deal with Scout Comics in five years, 
uh, uh, you guys have this conversation. And if you want to walk away with your title uh, from Scout Comics after five years, uh, you are welcome to do so, um, you know, with no ill will. Um, and that's how it should be. You know, um, I, I, I firmly believe that that, that you should not. Uh, um, you get so little uh, with a creator-owned contract uh, uh, generally um, that uh, that you should not be giving your rights away uh, for life, um, unless it's it's you know unless the pot has really been sweetened, unless it's really you know really freaking worth it. Um, and so, take a close look at that. And, and be on guard and uh, and and get a you know get a great lawyer like Thomas to uh, look over your contract and 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 tell you if uh, you know somebody's trying to jab you. And I don't know how much more time we have. I mean, I can give on going, but uh, but I, I would love to to sort of at least button out what I was talking about option purchase agreements and and taking the con the uh, comics to uh, to Hollywood. Um, and I think there's there's it. A connection between that that never-ending term and what often happens with these uh, option purchase agreements, which are attached to the publisher's agreement. Uh, oftentimes, it'll say, "Sure, your term is four years, three years, two years," and then we renegotiate. But if a Hollywood company picks up the option purchase agreement you have just signed, well, then you're stuck with us, baby, uh, and. Um, I mean, I can certainly get the 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 point of the publishing company, but uh, but if they're making money from your property through film and TV, then the fact that you've taken this and you've gone to another uh, publishing company, they, they may see well this is sort of cross purposes. Um, but I think the the real problem is this assumption that a publishing company is a production company. Or a product, or a publishing company is, you know, de facto the best place to handle that IP right of, you know, the audiovisual rights, you know, in uh, in your comic. Uh, and so, one of the things I'd like to start to see um, is companies that recognize that, you know, they may not be in the best position because they're just going to go to an agent um, and they don't necessarily have a, an open door themselves. Um, but if to, to flip the script a little bit and to say, okay, if this does get turned into a motion picture, you know, in the next few years during the term of the publishing group, then maybe there's some portion of those proceeds that goes to the, the publishing company rather than the publishing company having the right, you know, as a, as a sort of presumption that they have the, the right to take this and, and flip it to a, um, you know, a, a Hollywood studio. Now it's hard to, to, make this a black and white rule because there are some companies that are really good at doing that and that are are set up doing that and you want to be with them i mean obviously you know dc warners it's it's the same thing or you know it, it's a part of warners um but uh, but for the others you know it's really much more attenuated than people who are presented with these option purchase agreements believe um you know there's very often a uh, a period of time where the publishing company is searching around for an agent just to knock on doors in Hollywood. And, you know, I, I think all of us here, you know, have had the experience of writing screenplays and dealing with agents. And, you know, I don't need to give up my rights to pay somebody else to do that because they're also not going to be as staunch an advocate for my property as I am, you know? So, uh, so I think, you know, I'd like to see creators being a little bit more uh, sort of forceful pushing back on those kinds of areas. 
you know, unless they go to a client of mine who's a publisher, in which case, no, it's off the table. Well, I mean, you're 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 one hundred percent right, and I've seen this over and over again, where it's like you you better you better know what you're getting if you're giving up some of those rights, right? I mean, again, if we if you go to Scout Comics, three of the six partners over at Scout Comics are 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 Hollywood guys, and and they've been working in Hollywood for decades, hundreds of IMDb credits. They 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 have a they have a a track record of setting up yeah. things in Hollywood. And so, and so they're giving you something for that percentage. There's a value added there. Yeah, right. yeah. We're, 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 we're on the other side of the coin. You have a lot of these companies that are sitting in, you know, uh, I, 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 almost, <laughs> I, I almost said an identifiable, but let's say they're sitting in Nebraska somewhere. Let's, let's make it nice and neutral. Um, just sitting on a, a pile of IP waiting for, for someone to reach out to them. Mm -hmm. and, and they're sitting, they're literally sitting on lottery tickets in their mind. And uh, and 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 some uh, some hard nosed executive in Hollywood may be, you know may may trip over the book and read it and be like oh there's something here let me let me contact them via their website or Twitter and be like hey we want to option this and that is their entire you know film uh, outreach uh, uh, program that's what it is like I I think that you are giving a lot of these companies uh, a lot of credit by saying they're actually going out and trying yes. to find an agent that will shop their stuff because I mean to me like that's um I think like maybe the top 20% of the companies are doing that uh, uh, you know maybe the top 5% are, are, are doing a whole lot more than that but everyone else is literally they're sitting on a pile of lottery tickets that's what they're doing and so do not give away a huge portion of your your, your IP uh, unless you're going to get something back for it. I think that's incredible advice. Yeah. Well, I can, I can tell we need to do a part two. Okay. Happy <laughs> to do it. There is so much, uh, there's so much to cover. Uh, and we, this was all great, but there's still so much to talk about. Uh, and my cat has many, many questions actually, as you well, can tell. Happy to come back. And for those of you who do have the opportunity to come to New York comic con, about yep. critical contracts and copyrights for the comic book creator, Friday, October 8th at 11 a.m. Very nice. nice. This is the book. Pocket Lawyer for Comic Book Creators, Thomas Crowell. All right, my plug's out of the way. <laughs> Excellent. We That's usually how we wrap up is by letting everybody close. And where can people find you on the web if they want to reach out? So you guys have been looking at my uh, name. Those of you who have the video, it's uh, Thomas Crowell, C-R-O-W-E-L-L. -L. But it, there are two ways to find me. You can either go to thomascrowell.com. Uh, that's my more personable uh, website. And there's the uh, law firm website, lanecrowell.com. And you can find me that way you know, on the, on the web. And I have links to all my social on uh, my personal site. Yeah. Are you adding, are you adding Becker to that, uh, that, that law firm? <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, see how I brought it back. That's a little, uh, yeah, that's some UCD training right there. Here we go, a little call back there. <laughs> and we will, um, we will have all of these links uh, in the show notes. So, uh, uh, you know, if you you don't you don't have a pencil around, then uh, look in the show notes and you'll see all Thomas's uh, stuff. Um, I am uh, I am at Ryland Grant on all forms of social media. That's R Y L E N D G R A N C. I uh, always spell it because it's not a real name. My parents drunkenly arranged letters and settled me with it, <laughs> and so now I have to spell it for you. Um, but yeah, my uh, my books, the uh, Ringo Award-winning Aberrant and the four-time Ringo-nominated Banjax, are available in fine comic shops everywhere and uh, uh, on Amazon and Comicsology for a little while longer, at least. Um, my, uh, Kickstarter opuses, um, my, uh, astral projection thriller, the jump and my, um, 
Fargo-esque crime drama. The Peacekeepers are available now via Backerkit. If you go to the jump to backerkit.com the jump one word and the number two the jump two backerkit.com you'll find those there as well as signed copies of aberrant and banjacks and maybe suicide jockeys now uh that is a good one-stop uh rylan grant shop um if you look at my twitter um we are doing a fundraiser uh sort of thing right now um uh, it, uh most of our listeners will know uh uh edwin acasio uh who was uh the comic jabroni he was a very um uh noteworthy comic youtuber who passed away tragically uh, uh about a year ago he left behind a wife and, and a couple of kids um and sort of on the anniversary of his his death um we did a sort of special tribute comic book to him it is a uh uh, a combined version of the jump uh, one and two. I don't have it with me right now, um, but it has a special uh, cover on it. Um, and it is a, it's kind of a beautiful, perfect bound book, almost like a trade paperback. The only time you can get one and two together, uh, but it has Edwin on the cover. It's a nice tribute to him. Uh, there's some stuff about Edwin inside, uh, really great volume, but all the proceeds go to Edwin's family. Um, and so we're selling that right now uh, on the backer kit. So, uh, if you want to uh, to make a contribution uh, to honor Edwin, uh, you go again. Go to the jump uh, the jump two You'll find that there. And of course, last shameless plug: uh, Suicide Jockeys uh, is uh, issues one and two are available right now in your comic shop. So get down and get it. It is uh, madcap tokusatsu fun. Uh, you'll love that one. Uh, Avalone, let us uh, know where to find your business. Uh, Thomas. Thank you for coming on and thanks for all that great stuff. Uh, I really, I wish I was going to New York Comic Con. I, <laughs> I, I, I'm not quite making it this year, but uh, I encourage everybody to go to those uh, those panels if you get a chance. I can be found at uh, davidavalonefreelance.com. From there, it branches off to all the social medias and the things and the stuff and the junk and you can find about everything that I do. I do another podcast called Pulp Today, which is also from Pendant Audio on iTunes, where I read and discuss uh, classic pulp fiction. Uh, oh, and wow. my, definition okay. of, my definition of pulp fiction is wide enough that I have talked about the Odyssey and Tarzan, both on that Ooh, show. Nice. So, uh, so anything that's ever been published on cheap paper essentially qualifies as pulp fiction. And uh, that's it. Thanks for listening. And See you on the next exciting episode. Thanks, guys. If you're watching us on YouTube, be sure to smash that like button. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or other fine purveyors of ear crack, please leave us a five-star review. And wherever you're watching and or listening, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. We'll see you back here next week for more madcap hijinks on The Writer's Block. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.